BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. We begin this morning with breaking news in San Jose, where several people are dead after a mass shooting, according to the San Jose Mercury News. The Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department says a shooter is down. The shooting happened around 7 this morning at a rail yard belonging to the Santa Clara Valley Transportation Authority. That's near the Santa Clara County Jail. KQED will have ongoing coverage on this story as it develops. With more seniors vaccinated in Los Angeles County, young adults now make up the greatest share of people in the hospital with COVID-19. KPCC's Jackie Fortier has more. Over the past six weeks, there have been more 30 to 49-year-olds hospitalized with the coronavirus than any other age group. It's a big change from earlier in the pandemic, when those who became sick enough for emergency care skewed older. L.A. County Health Director Barbara Ferrer said older adults are protected because so many of them are vaccinated, and young children may be protected by mask-wearing at schools. The people in the middle group, many of them are workers and people responsible for the care of others are not as well protected by either of these factors. And if they're not vaccinated, they are highly likely to end up with a COVID infection and unfortunately disproportionately likely to end up in the hospitals. Ferrer said almost all the people in the hospital with COVID-19 have not been vaccinated. There's been a steep drop-off in adults getting their first dose, and half of eligible people in L.A. County are not vaccinated. More than 700 pharmacies, clinics, community sites, and hospitals offer the free vaccine to anyone 12 and up. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Governor Gavin Newsom is facing increasing pressure to expand health coverage through the state's Medi-Cal program to all low-income adults, regardless of immigration status. KQED's health correspondent April Demboski explains the price tag is high, even with this year's budget surplus. Extending health coverage to undocumented immigrants has been incremental. In 2015, California opened Medi-Cal to undocumented kids, then in 2019, to young adults. The governor has said he's willing to cover seniors starting this year. But State Assemblymember Joaquin Arambula says now's the time to include everyone in between. We must acknowledge that we are not done until we end the exclusion. We have to fix the systematic issue that's at the core of this. And that's that our immigrant brothers and sisters are not able to access health care in the same fashion as other income-eligible Californians. Arambula and other lawmakers are enlisting the help of the iconic labor organizer, Dolores Huerta, to petition and lobby for the change. We know and we have learned from COVID-19, we are not all healthy unless everyone is healthy. 
Covering all undocumented adults would cost the state $2.4 billion a year. It's unclear if Newsom will agree to this while facing a recall election. One of his Republican challengers, John Cox, criticized the previous expansion on Fox News in 2018. We have the highest tax rates in the country, and our out-of-control legislature is deciding to give another freebie to people who are here illegally. Uh, We're a compassionate society, but there's a limit to what we can afford to do. Still, a recent poll shows a majority of Californians support providing health coverage to all, regardless of immigration status. The legislature has until June 15th to agree on a final budget. For The California Report, I'm April Domboski. As soon as next year, the Biden administration plans to sell leases for floating wind farms off the coast of San Luis Obispo and Humboldt counties. KQED's Kevin Stark reports it's a toss-up between whether the engineering or navigating the red tape is the bigger challenge. Soon, hundreds of wind turbines could be spinning 20 miles off the coast of California, generating power free of fossil fuels. The coastline there declined sharply, and the construction of these wind farms will take a feat of engineering, yet the largest obstacles could be bureaucratic. Developers will have to analyze ocean currents, whale and bird migration patterns, and the impact on fishing and shipping, and should expect objections. Governor Gavin Newsom signaled during a call with reporters that he's hoping to move quickly to okay any plans. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we, we value process, but not the paralysis of a process that takes years and years and years that could be done in a much more focused way. Newsom's latest budget includes millions of dollars to speed up environmental review. The military, which uses these waters for training, has dropped its opposition. For The California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. Governor Newsom has proposed spending a record $2 billion on wildfire prevention this year. That's double what he proposed in January. But one aspect of fire prevention that's out of the governor's hands is the severe understaffing of federal wildland firefighters. Many of these are so-called hotshot crews who are normally sent into some of the most challenging and dangerous spots and play a big role in stopping wildfires from spreading out of control. Ben Elkind is a smoke jumper with the U.S. Forest Service and former hotshot crew member. He tells the California Report the job has challenges aside from the actual firefighting. You start working, you know, in March or April or, or even May, and you don't stop till October or November now. And you're working 14 to 21 days straight. And then you get two days off if you're lucky. Then you're back out on the road again. So You know, you're going through these stretches of 45 days or 30 some days with two days off and you're doing that year after year. Elkine says pay is also a major issue as many hotshot crew members have left for jobs with Cal Fire or other agencies that can often offer double the salary they make with the U.S. Forest Service. The union that represents federal firefighters says only 70 percent of hotshot crews are expected to be fully staffed this year. New polling shows support for the recall of Governor Newsom may be stagnating. KQED's Katie Orr reports. The Public Policy Institute of California poll finds 40 percent of likely voters think Newsom should be removed from office. That number hasn't changed from the PPIC survey last March. 57 percent of likely voters say they'll reject the recall and keep Newsom in power. Current trends in the state may be helping the governor maintain support. 75% of Californians think the state is doing an excellent or good job of distributing COVID-19 vaccines. And more than 8 in 10 Californians believe the worst of the pandemic is behind the United States. 
But voters are concerned about the widening income gap in California. A solid majority of Republicans, Democrats and independent voters say the gap between the rich and the poor is getting bigger. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. In other recall news, an animal rights group is suing Republican gubernatorial candidate John Cox for using TAG, the large bear accompanying Cox on the campaign trail. The Animal Rights and Protection League alleges that the bear has been drugged and abused and is asking a judge to stop Cox from using it. Cox's campaign has said that they've taken every step to ensure the comfort and safety of the animal. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Well, here in California, doctors, lawyers, and even barbers can lose their license to practice if they do something wrong. There's no similar recourse for some of the most powerful civil servants around, police. Advocates have been working for years to change that, and this year they think there's a real chance to pass legislation they say would hold police accountable. KQED's MJ Johnson reports on the debate playing out in Sacramento. Growing up in San Francisco, Michelle Monterosa remembers attending protests against police brutality with her brother, Sean. The only thing is, is that this fight became personal once our brother was murdered. Sean was killed by a Vallejo police officer. The family later found out the officer had been involved in three other shootings. The Solano County District Attorney refused to bring charges against the officer. Recently, state prosecutors announced they will investigate. But with criminal investigations moving at a snail's pace, the families of people who've been killed by police say they're pursuing another path towards justice. Proposed legislation that would bar police who've committed acts of misconduct from being rehired by other agencies. We need to build a pathway where we can remove dangerous police officers from our communities, because at the end of the day, our loved ones are unfortunately just counting down the days until they become the next hashtag. So this bill is long overdue. California is one of just four states that does not have any process to decertify police officers. Police groups say they are all for a decertifying program. They agree. Bad cops shouldn't continue to be part of law enforcement in California. They just don't like the details. One area they've zeroed in on is the advisory board proposed in the bill. The board would consist of nine members, seven of them civilians and just two from law enforcement. I can guarantee you that there's probably no licensure program in the entire United States where two-thirds of the people that sit on that panel are predisposed to, to be against the person coming before them. That's Brian Marvel, president of the Police Officers Research Association of California, or PORAC, which represents over 70,000 law enforcement members in the state. The advisory board would review investigations and make recommendations to a governing body about decertifying a police officer. Marvel says it's not fair that the group includes two people who've experienced police misconduct or are family members of people killed by police. 
But Lizzie Buchan, a lobbyist for the ACLU, says family members and civilians are just one layer in a multi-layer process that includes law enforcement. We think that with law enforcement really dominating this whole process, we think it's really important that we have that one layer that is mostly civilians to ensure that they have an opportunity to, to have a say in the process as well. Despite the disagreements, both sides are at the table negotiating, and last week, the bill passed out of a key committee. Still, the intense disagreements over the bill's details show that while California is known as a progressive state, even here, and even in the wake of last summer's social uprising against racism and police brutality, police reform has been difficult to pass in the California legislature. Yet, Buchan of the ACLU says after years of law enforcement exercising outsized power in Sacramento, things do seem to be shifting politically. Their grip on the legislature, which used to be iron-fisted, has, has really loosened. And, and I think that, you know, we're seeing increasingly members of the legislature declare that they're not going to accept contributions from law enforcement. Their campaign contributions are becoming toxic. People don't want to be seen as being in the pocket of law enforcement unions. The bill isn't alone, though advocates consider it the most significant proposal this year. Other bills being considered would require police officers to intervene if they see other officers using excessive force, to send community-based organizations to respond to 911 calls instead of police officers, and crack down on police officers making false reports. For The California Report, I'm MJ Johnson. Finally today, this afternoon, the University of California Center in Washington is hosting Iranian musician Saper Haddad for a conversation about his new book, A Hundred Sweet Promises. The book shares the story of the author's grandfather, who leaves his homeland in Persia for St. Petersburg, where he falls in love with a princess from the Russian royal family. Haddad tells me he wrote the book after visiting Iran for the first time since the Iranian Revolution with his kids. The thing that instigated me wanting to write this was watching a Rick Steves program on Iran in 2009. Um, uh, the last year I was in Iran was 1978, uh, right before the revolution. And uh, when Rick Steves was starting this program 35 years later, I felt a, a true feeling of nostalgia and I really missed Iran. And I told my wife, who is American, and I have two Iranian-American sons, that I wanted to take them to Iran so that they could see Iran. And so we did take a trip there uh, after we saw that Rick Steves program. And while we were there, I remembered the story that my grandmother had told me, as I said, in 1978, during martial law in Iran, uh, when we were watching television together and there were these, um, there was the instability outside and there were tanks and, uh, you know, the police were being backed up by gun-toting soldiers. And so it was very, interesting scene for me back then uh, in 1978. And then my grandmother, uh, as we were listening to the news, the newscaster kept repeating that somebody by the name of Khomeini was distributing cassette tapes in the mosques. And that's how people were getting the message, Khomeini's message. And, mm -hmm. and I asked my grandmother, who is this Khomeini? Because, uh, you know, we had grown up in Iran, gone to school in Iran. I even went to the international school, Iran Zamin. Uh, and we had access to all kinds of reading material and information that might not have even been available on the street. And so she started to explain to me who Khomeini was, since I'd never heard his name. And I was totally shocked. And I mm -hmm. said, how can it be that we didn't even know about him? 
And she said, there's a lot of things you don't know. It's not that surprising. I said, yeah, like what else? And she said, well, for example, your grandfather, you didn't know that he fell in love with the Russian princess. And I was totally flabbergasted. I was shocked. And I said, what do you mean? And then I started thinking, what else is there that I don't know? I didn't know about Fulmeni. I don't know about my own grandfather. And so she started to tell me the story of his life and how uh, he had traveled and gone to Russia to study music at the St. Petersburg Conservatory uh, and how he had become the tutor to the uh, czar's only niece and that they had fallen in love. And when we went back to Iran in 2009, my wife uh, told me, you have to write the story because when we were sitting in a taxi, a taxi cab driver, noticing my wife was American, uh, started speaking broken English to her. And I asked him, where had you learned English? And he said, uh, at the garrison in Shiraz. And I told him, yes. And I told him, I said, really, uh, my uncle was the general that was the head of the garrison, General Mimbashian. And he pulled the cab to the side of the road, started saluting me, (laughs) saying that it was him that brought us the English language courses that I can now speak with you. Oh my gosh. And my wife started saying, listen, you have to write this because if you don't, in the middle of nowhere on the road from Shiraz to Persepolis, uh, somebody is telling you this 70, 80 year old man is telling you a story about your uncle. If you don't write this and document it after our generation, these stories will all be lost. That's really quite a story. Um, there's probably some listeners who are very well aware that you are also a very well-regarded musician, and you took time from that career in order to sit down and do exactly what your wife suggested that you do, uh, as all good husbands do, <laughs> <laughs> yes. which, which is to document this incredible story of your grandfather. Talk about the role that music plays in this book. Well, uh, it's so interesting because, uh, as you noted, you know, I'm Saper of the group Shaheen and Saper with my high school buddy Shaheen. And so we were lucky enough to get a uh, Virgin record contract many years ago. And so uh, we have a bunch of albums out there. They're instrumental music. Um, And so I always had this love of music. And until my grandmother had told me the story, I really hadn't thought about the fact that my grandfather in 1898, as a 13-year-old boy, had gone to St. Petersburg to study with the likes of Rimsky, Korsakov, and Glazunov, and these famous composers that we hear about today. It kind of focused my own interest in music, knowing that at least there's this lineage of my great-grandfather, Salar Moazaz, who actually wrote the first Persian national anthem, and then my own grandfather that this book is about, and then myself doing music, and now my children are also interested in music. So music... Uh, throughout this uh, book has a uh, um, music and destiny are the two themes I say that this book has, because there are a lot of events that occurred in my grandfather's life that you could truly attribute to fate and destiny. Mm -hmm. Uh, No matter how he would try to not do something, that thing would happen. And no matter how he would try to do something, it wouldn't happen. And all through his life, this thread of destiny and music are intertwined. And, you know, one of the things that also occurs to me as you're telling the story of how you ended up sitting down to write this book is, you know, as a Persian American myself, um, I often envy people who have a European or, you know, Anglo background, for example, because they can hop on Ancestry.com and learn all these things about where they came from. (laughs) And, you know, there's all these things you can do to understand your family history. 
And I feel like for us, for people from our part of the world, that's a lot harder to do um, unless you are lucky enough to have, you know, those family stories passed down to you. Or in your case, you know, this really fateful meeting with a with a driver <laughs> on the road from Shiraz to Persepolis. Um, you know, the, a lot of those stories are gone forever. Um, I just wonder if you have any reflections on that, because so many of us feel nostalgic. We feel so removed from our culture. But this idea that you can, you know, that you can reconnect with your history, if not your own family history, you know, kind of vicariously through you, I felt like I was connecting back to where my roots are. Right. Thank you. Well, you know, what's so interesting about this is until I had kids, I really didn't give it that much thought. It was after I had my children and, uh, you know, during the whole um, issues, the political issues that Iran has had and, you know, they uh, they read about it in the news and so forth. That's one reason why I wanted to take my children to Iran. So for themselves to see the greatness of the culture and the uh, just the historical sites, the history, the people, the food. I mean, there's so much richness in our culture that unfortunately is kind of uh, shoved under the rug because the more interesting things for the media could be um, things that are not that reflective of really what our culture is. And so when I took my kids there for the first time, I felt a, a connection to the past uh, in the country where I could see that these Iranian American boys who had never been to Iran were kind of awestruck at what an amazing country it was. And they told me that. While here, if they had just stayed here and never gone there, just from what they read in the news or in the papers or their friends at school, they would have had a different impression. And so you're right. Uh, it's a sad thing that the, uh, you know, these um, um, ancestry sites and so forth don't really follow uh, the backgrounds of a lot of people from the Middle East or other countries in the world, except for the European countries. And uh, that was one reason why even the, um, I, kind of dedicated the book to my two children so they would never forget their Persian roots. I wonder, you know, how did you go about documenting and incorporating the history of Iran and its inter interactions with Russia? Because Iran has long been a place where the Russians and the British were sort of duking it out for control. Um, and, you know, I have not read a lot of stories that incorporate this much of the Russian piece of that story. So this was really interesting to me. Right. Well, um, you know, it's so interesting, the parallels between uh, my life and my grandfather's life. Uh, when I was trying to write about my grandfather, the only information I really had about him were what my grandmother told me, what my mother had told me, and some of my uncles, and also newspaper articles. But I had never met him in person. And so at some points in this book, I was having trouble writing about him. And the publisher told me, well, why don't you put yourself in your grandfather's shoes? And once I did that, it was like this whole door opened up and I was able to write much more freely. Um, and um, I think what's interesting is that at that time in 1898, my great grandfather takes his 13 year old son to Russia, which was really the place to be at the time. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like the United States is now when we all came out of Iran to go to college everyone wanted to come to the United States. And so um, there was this parallel there that these were the two great uh, powers of the 19th century and now the 20 and 21st century. Um, and so it was interesting to write about the relationship between 
Russia and Iran, because I think a lot of people, when they think about Iran, they don't, they either think about the Persian Empire, you know, what's, um, for example, written in the Bible about the Persian Empire, some history, or they think about the after the revolution time. But there's this segment right in between, sandwiched in between, that we grew up in Iran and enjoyed the the fruits of that country's uh, history and culture and um, it, it was a joy to write it down and, and to express it because uh, this is something kind of like a mission that even Shaheen and I as musicians had back when we got the contract. Uh, they were always trying to change our name. We have Our name is Shaheen and Saper, and they kept saying it's too hard for people to pronounce and they're not going to be able to buy your music. And we were adamant and we said we want our Persian names as the name of the band. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an important thing to us. And we've been trying to do that sometimes, maybe a little over exuberant sometimes, but uh, that's been our mission all along. Oh, I appreciate that. I think it's harder to do that in the short run, but it's so important in the long run uh, to, to sort of display your heritage in that way. I am wondering if there's anything else that you want to say about this theme of, you know, East versus West. This is something that comes up in the book and something that I think a lot of um, people who uh, from Iran who ended up here in the United States can relate to. Uh, There was um, tension when Persians who had spent time abroad came back and no longer felt as connected to their Persian identity as they might have with the new identities or new personas that they had taken on from being in the West or in Europe? Well, it's so interesting. You know, there's a scene in the book where I actually write about when uh, Nasser Sultan, my grandfather, comes back from Russia. And the first thing the family does is they sacrifice a lamb uh, for his safe return. And in in Iran, the tradition was that they would do that um, and um, that the meat would be given as charity to the poor, as a thanks to God that this uh, safe trip had occurred. But when I went to Iran as a child with my parents once, this was exactly what I saw. And it was, you know, they had a lamb there and I thought the lamb was a little pet. And I was about to go try to pet it. And at, some person picked it up, threw it on the ground and did the sacrifice. And just to think of a seven, eight year old boy seeing that scene, wow. I was going to call the, the lamb Bambi. Uh, I loved it so much. Oh. And all of a sudden I realized this is culture shock uh, where, you know, this is something that they've been doing for years and years and years as part of the tradition and a religious tradition and so forth. And, and the outcome is a good one. You give the, the meat to charity, but the street side butchery was a shock for Nasser Sultan, just as it was for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's one of several extremely memorable scenes in this book. The book is called A Hundred Sweet Promises by Saper Haddad. And Saper, it's so nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that is the California Report for this Wednesday, May 26th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash adapting care. Personal Capital helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com.
And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.